Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 91, Dr. Joshua Thurow on Theories of the Atonement. Dr. Joshua Thurow is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He specializes in epistemology, metaphysics, and philosophy of religion. He's co-edited a book of papers entitled The A Priori in Philosophy, and he's published professional articles on a priori knowledge, moral knowledge, free will, tolerance, religious disagreement, and whether or not scientific studies of religious belief in some way undermine religious belief. I had the privilege of talking with him at the University of Notre Dame in May 2015, as he was finishing a year there as a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy of Religion. His topic for the year was Theories of Atonement. In this episode, we discuss the main varieties of atonement theories. Dr. Thurow, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dale. Christians of just about any stripe will say things like that Jesus died for the sins of humanity, or that something about his death and resurrection achieved atonement, achieved reconciliation between God and human beings. And yet, people find this very puzzling. They ask themselves, what does this supposedly innocent man getting horribly killed, what does that have to do with like me being forgiven? He didn't do my sins. Uh, he's not blameworthy in any way. And I mean, how can it be just or a good thing that the person who didn't do it gets punished? And the New Testament, of course, says quite a lot about this, but it's all by way of metaphor, pretty much. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it's not literal. I mean, they're still my sins. They didn't get taken to Siberia or something. Um, he's compared to the scapegoat who they would uh, pray over him, the priests in ancient Israel, and symbolically put their sins upon his head and drive him into the wilderness. Uh, he's compared to the Passover lamb, an innocent lamb that's killed and his blood is put on the doorposts. It's almost spoken of like he's a substitute for us, like he's standing in for sinners, or that he's somehow paying a debt, but there's not literal debt being paid. There's no million dollars that somehow is uh, compensating God for all the terrible things I've done. And so theologians and also uh, Christian philosophers, people that do philosophy of religion and analytic theology, they want to make literal sense of these things. And uh, you've done a lot of work on that, particularly in the last year as you've been a visiting scholar here at the University of Notre Dame. And so in this episode, we're going to just discuss what some of the different approaches are to making sense of all of this. So how do you see the field? How do you, in your own mind, kind of lay out the different approaches and classify them? What I want to start out by saying is that I think uh, the doctrine of the atonement is a really tough doctrine to understand. Philosophers have spent a lot of time thinking about other Christian doctrines, so you'll find a lot of recent philosophical work on, say, resurrection or incarnation or trinity. Indeed, my fellow interviewer here is well known for his work on the trinity. Um, so there's a lot of philosophical work on, on those doctrines. There's less on the atonement. There is some. 
but there's less. Surely, of course, throughout the history of theology, a lot has been written, so there's certainly a lot of people thinking about it, but I think in, in sort of recent philosophy, religion, philosophical work, it, it's gotten kind of short shrift. And um, I think that's unfortunate because it's a really puzzling doctrine for the reasons that you gave. Um, it raises a lot of questions, and as you mentioned, the New Testament doesn't give us really clear answers to those questions. It uses a lot of metaphors to describe what Jesus is doing. But certainly, according to the New Testament, Jesus is doing something super important to bring about our salvation, and it's described in lots of ways. So how can we understand uh, what uh, his work really amounts to, how it is that he's bringing about our reconciliation with God? Well, maybe the first thing to do is to think just a little bit about what this word atonement means, because it's kind of an unfamiliar word to a lot of people. Sometimes, you know, it's got really strong religious associations, but I really think the core idea behind it is pretty familiar to a lot of us. We just maybe don't use that word. Here's, I think, a useful definition. So to atone is to remove a rift caused by wrongdoing to achieve reconciliation. The idea is that there's a a rift between people. Um, There's a division something that makes them not relate well to each other. And that rift is due to a wrongdoing. So one of the parties has wronged the other. Maybe they've each wronged each other, but there's uh, some wronging that's, that's happened. So to atone is to bridge that rift in order to be reconciled. Okay, so atonement has a goal, which is reconciliation. So you'll see that that, that notion then isn't a specifically religious idea. It's really an idea that we're all very familiar with. We're all familiar with having hurt people wrong them. If you're like me, Dale, and you in the audience, you're not a perfect human being. You've hurt people who are really close to you, sometimes even intentionally. And in those occasions, we feel like we should do something to make up for that, right? To right the wrong. Sometimes we, we feel it as if it's a debt that we owe to those people. Or maybe we feel like we're sort of stained by this wrongdoing that we want to wipe away, right? So all these kinds of metaphors fit really naturally into um, this notion of, of, of atoning. And the goal, again, is to achieve reconciliation. We want our relationship to sort of be restored. So that's the general idea of atonement. All right, so the question is this. What does Jesus's work do to bring about atonement with the goal of reconciling sinful humans with God, who humans have sinned against? So let's look at a few different theories. Christians have thought about this for a long time, and we can classify their theories into two broad groups. So the first is what we'll call subjective theories, and the second is what we'll call objective theories. Now, the difference between these two broad groupings has to do with the effect of Jesus' work. What is it really doing? So according to the subjective theories, what Jesus' work is doing is bringing about a change in us, sinful human beings. Whereas for objective theories, what Jesus' work is doing is he's, a, he's bringing about some other kind of change, some sort of objective change in our relationship with God. So there's these two different classes of theories, and there's a number of different sort of sub-theories under each of them. So let's start with the subjective theories. These go by a variety of different names. Here's two, uh, moral influence theory or a moral exemplar theory. They're slightly different, but the basic idea is sort of the same, which is that what Jesus does to reconcile us to God is he changes us. So he's an influence on us for the better. He's an exemplar that is an example that is to be imitated. And the idea is that his whole life is an example to be imitated, right? He loved people. He sacrificed a lot to save people. 
He forgave people who had harmed him. Indeed, he was ready to do that even on the cross, apparently. He was willing to heal people who needed healing. So the idea is that he, he had this kind of attitude of love towards God and towards all human beings, and that the way that he expressed that attitude is something that we all need to imitate. And so then the main thing that his obedience unto death accomplishes is it's such a mind-blowingly good example for us, and it is a, a mind-blowing example. If you try to imagine what it's like if you watch a Jesus movie on TV, and certainly it's a New Testament theme that he is to be imitated. Oh, no doubt. Um, it's a very prominent theme. You see it in a number of different verses. Uh, you'll see it in uh, Philippians 2.5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So there's a pretty clear illustration of the idea that we're supposed to be like Jesus, supposed to have a similar mind to him, presumably valuing certain things, having the same sorts of goals that he has in mind. Yes, and it does go on in that very passage to talk about his obedience, even to the point of a horrible death. Right. You've got that passage in uh, John 15, uh, which says, No one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So Jesus plainly recognizes this idea that, you know, dying for your friends is an amazing form of love, something that uh, he wants us to imitate. Uh, you see the same idea in uh, 1 Peter 2.21, which says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. It's a really prominent New Testament theme that followers of Jesus should be imitators of him. Yeah, so definitely these subjective theories are picking up on a, a really significant uh, New Testament theme. But this is probably not a majority view, the, this particular subjective theory. Even though it's so prominent in the New Testament, it's, I would guess, not the most popular view that Christian theologians and philosophers take. Well, no, in short. Just about everybody says that this is an important aspect of atonement, of bringing about reconciliation. So nobody's going to deny that this is something that, that Jesus does for, for his followers and that it's an important way of bringing about reconciliation. The question is, is that all there is to it? And very many theologians, philosophers of religion, have thought that this can't be all that there is to it. It's a, a, a limited view of the work that Jesus does, and they, and they think this for a couple of reasons. One is that it doesn't clearly make sense of the wide range of language that's used to describe Jesus' work in the New Testament. So he's not only talked about as um, someone to be imitated, particularly with regard to his love, but he's uh, seen to be a redeemer, right? So that notion of redemption has to do with, um, it's like paying somebody to release uh, like a captive prisoner or a slave, right? That's sort of the redemption price is the thing that you pay to release that person. So that idea is like this idea that Jesus is bringing about some sort of freedom, right? But that doesn't seem to connect very well with these subjective changes, you know, that the subjective theory talks about. Jesus is, as you mentioned earlier, his, his work is described as a sacrifice. Well, the moral exemplar idea doesn't really have any connections at all to sacrifice. So a lot of theologians will say that the, though there's a lot it's to be a lot good to be said about the subjective theory. It's not a complete theory of atonement. I'll just mention one other problem, which is that the Christian view thinks that somehow maybe lots of parts of Jesus' life are uh, part of his atoning work, but they will say that his death 
and maybe resurrection are like the central parts. Like they do something distinctively important. One trouble I think with the subjective theory is it doesn't really explain why his death is so distinctively important. Right? Jesus could be a really great model of how we should live without having died. I mean, you could imagine God at some point just said, yep, this is my guy. He lived a great life, right? Booming voice from the clouds, follow him, and then, right, up he goes into heaven. And there are even comparable examples, like in the book of Hebrews, it mentions martyrs who essentially refuse to deny God, refuse to disavow him, and, you know, were tortured to death, possibly in more horrible ways even than crucifixion. Right. Yeah, so... um, so for these various reasons, a lot of theologians fostered of religion have thought that the subjective theories, although they have some truth to them, are not by themselves um, sufficient to understand the atonement. The other views are all different varieties of objective views. So they all say that Jesus' work somehow does something more objective than just changing our own personal attitudes, virtues, cares, desires, things like that. So let's start with one view that you see signs of it in the New Testament and that became a a kind of prominent motif in the uh, early Christian fathers. And that's the ransom, what's called the ransom theory or the ransom uh, motif of, um, of atonement. So this is a fun one. Uh, it's fun because it's, it, it really takes its form as, as a story. It really keys in on the New Testament language of redemption. So the basic idea behind the ransom theory is this. When humans sinned, they somehow came under the power of the devil. So it's like God set Satan up as a kind of judge or hangman, right, over humanity. And once humanity disobeys, they're then put under the authority of Satan, who is to then carry out the judgment sentence. So the idea is that here we are, all of humanity, sitting under this power of Satan, just waiting to be punished for the things that we've done against God. But of course, God doesn't want this. He wants to free his people. He wants humans to be redeemed, to be pulled out, bought out under the power of Satan. So one core idea behind this, then, is that Satan has some rights over us, that he has the right to do what he does to us, to sort of taunt us, to tempt us, to punish us in the afterlife, or whatever. Yeah, nowadays we think about ransoming purely in terms of kidnap victims, which is relatively rare in most countries, but people don't know this, but in the Middle Ages and in the ancient world, it was a common warfare practice where you would try to nab the monarch or for the whole purpose of holding them for ransom. Yeah, and also slavery, and that happened also in the context of warfare. If you conquered your enemies, one of the, the treasures that you took away were the enemies that were then uh, slaves in your society. And those slaves could be released 
from being slaves. And when they were, the word they used to describe that was they were redeemed. And typically that happens by them either earning their redemption through some special work towards their owners or somebody else paying a price for them. So yeah, the idea here is that we are uh, in slavery to Satan, and rightly so. And so God can't just sort of take us from Satan, because Satan in some sense has rights over us. He, we are kind of owed to him in virtue of the wrong things that we've done. But still, this probably isn't a majority view, even though it's very much discussed by the, the fathers of the first several centuries. And some of them have uh, hilarious metaphors. Uh, you know, Jesus is like a fish hook. Yeah. It's like God's going fishing, and, and the, uh, the hook is the divinity, and the worm is the humanity. So the stupid Satan, like a fish, bites, bites the one and gets yes. caught on the other. You see this metaphor a lot. It's in uh, Gregory the Great, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, but yeah, that's the idea, is that what Jesus does then is he, he's, he's a kind of price that releases us from Satan's hold. But the way he does that is through a kind of trickery. He's um, full God and full man. But Satan doesn't really realize that he's dealing with a God-man. He just thinks, oh, here's a human, and this human's going to sin like all the rest of them. So I'm going to tempt this human, and I'm going to mess with him, and he's going to be mine, just like the rest of them. And so he does that. He tries to tempt them, right, throughout the history of Jesus' life. And eventually, Satan carries out this great plan to just kill him. Well, when Satan does that, he oversteps his rights, says the theory. Because Satan only has a right over people who have sinned. And Jesus was, in fact, sinless. So Satan got a little too greedy. And because of that, he now owes something to God. Like, he has now overstepped the boundaries of the role that God has assigned him. So God now can rightly take something from him. And what does he take? He takes all of humanity back from Satan's power. So we're all freed from the power of Satan and now under God's dominion. Yeah, right, at least the ones who have accepted the atonement. That's right. You do have to accept the atonement. In a, in a way, you can think of him as sort of like um, Moses, who's leading the Israelites, right, out of slavery. It's like, I got a way, right, but you got to choose to follow. The ransom theory was, as I mentioned, a a very widespread idea in the patristic period, but it wasn't the only um, way to understand the atonement. So here's another idea that becomes much more prominent in the Reformation. Some people think you'll see it in the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, and certainly you see bits of it in some of the church fathers as well, and this is the idea of penal substitution. So here's the core idea. Humans have sinned, so we've created this rift between us and God and we want to repair it, right? But the way that you repair wrongdoing is you suffer punishment. You deserve punishment for the wrongs that you've done. And by accepting that punishment, you then have paid the debt that you owed, and so now you can be reconciled to, um, to your victim. So the idea is that humans, as a whole, deserve punishment for their sins against God. And what punishment do they deserve? Death. Here's the problem, though. If we experience death, we're then separated from God. So what God wants is to reconcile us to him. He doesn't want us to be damned eternally. So he needs to find a way for humans to somehow pay what's owed to God, punishment, without then being eternally separated from God. This sounds like a puzzle. 
But the way it works out is that Jesus serves as a sort of substitute for humanity. Although he's sinless, so he doesn't owe anything to God. He doesn't owe to God the Father. He doesn't owe, he doesn't deserve punishment of any sort at all. And yet he suffers it on behalf of sinful humanity. And so the punishment that was due to us sinful humans is instead thrown upon Jesus. He suffers it. Now we don't know it anymore. So we've paid our debt through our substitute, and so now we're reconciled to God. And I think a lot of people who hold this view would say that God's wrath had to be expressed. Maybe even justice required that to be done. That's right. And so it's expressed on this, on the, on the per, not the guilty party, but on an innocent party. Right. And you might worry about whether that is truly just, and that's maybe something we'll talk about next time. But yeah, that's the idea, is that God is a truly just God, and he did lay down laws, is the idea here behind this theory, that says that the wages of sin is death. And so for him to be consistent and just, that punishment has to be served. But of course, if we serve it, we're then eternally separated from God. And so somebody else needs to serve it, and that's Jesus. So that's the penal substitution view. That view, unlike the ransom view, is still very popular today. Um, There's a number of Christians, you find it, especially in um, reform circles, in sort of conservative evangelical circles, you'll find that that view widely expressed. Uh, I'm curious now, what about Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox circles? I have the idea it's maybe not as popular. Yeah, I think it's not as popular in those two circles. The Eastern Orthodox views I'm, I'm not as familiar with, but they fit a little bit more with uh, a view we're going to look at a little later, which is Christ's Victor model. But uh, actually, a number of Eastern Patristic Fathers express uh, elements from each of these objective views that I'm going to talk about. You'll actually find bits of things that kind of suggest penal substitutionary views. Catholics don't tend to go for a penal substitutionary view. Instead, they tend to go for uh, variants of this next view that I'm going to talk about, which is um, satisfaction views. Satisfaction views is a whole family of views. There's lots of different ways of developing this, and you have different theologians that do do it differently. But sort of the fountainhead for these views was Anselm of Canterbury, a particularly famous medieval theologian, philosopher. He wrote what I believe is the first systematic, well-developed, account of what we would today call the Doctrine of the Atonement in a book that's called uh, Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Man, which he wrote in the 11th century. So in that book, he developed this sort of satisfaction model or theory of atonement. So here's the general idea. Humans owe various things to God. We owe obedience to God in virtue of being his sons and daughters in virtue of his commands to us. Humans have all universally disobeyed God. By disobeying him, we've dishonored him. And by dishonoring him, we now owe him a debt. Right? This actually kind of latches on to how we sometimes intuitively feel when we have wronged somebody. Right? When we wrong someone, sometimes we feel like we owe them something right, in return. It's natural to talk about that in terms of a debt. Anselm does too. So he thinks that sinful humanity now owes a debt to God. And he thinks there's two ways they can pay that debt. They can either suffer punishment... If we went that way, we'd be going back to the penal substitutionary view. But Anselm explicitly says that's not how it works. Okay, that's not how we're going to pay our debt to God. The other way we can do it is by offering satisfaction. Or another word for that might be reparation. Something that we give to God sort of in place of or to make up for the the wrong that we've done to him. 
Whenever I hear this talk about satisfaction, I always remember that Bugs Bunny cartoon where there's a stereotypical Southern gentleman in a white suit, and uh, Bugs Bunny offends him, and he slaps him across the face with a glove. Sir, I demand satisfaction. He wants to duel him or something. Yeah, because his honor's been offended. His honor's been offended. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, there's there's a fair bit of dispute in the scholarship about this, how to interpret that honor, that uh, idea that uh, God's been dishonored. So a lot of people interpret in that in that kind of uh, Bugs Bunny way, where it's like it's like his dignity is offended, and to get his dignity back, you got to give him something, right? And some people think that's a problem. Others think that it's not quite that. It's just a matter of respect for somebody. That when you've harmed them, you've disrespected them, and it's wrong to disrespect people. Not that you've made them feel huffy or something like that, but just wronging them is an intrinsic disrespect, and they needs to be responded to. So the idea is that to give to pay this debt that we owe to God, we've, we're going to offer satisfaction. Now, how are we going to do that? Here's the problem. No humans can do it. That is no created humans. The reason for that is we're all sinful and we all owe God everything. So I've got nothing that I can give to God. None of us humans have anything we can give to God beyond what we're already obligated to give him. And if we're already obligated to give him these things, we can't then use that as satisfaction to make up for something to make up for this wrong that we did. So we're stuck in a really tough pickle. We owe God this debt. Anselm often calls it an infinite debt. We are unable to pay that debt. How are we going to deal with this problem? Well, there is somebody who could pay the debt. Namely, a being who is sinless. But no created humans are like that. Thus, Anselm reasons, proper satisfaction could be given by a God-man that is, a being who is both divine and human. By being human, born of the human race, he is then in a position to offer satisfaction on behalf of the race. By being divine, he is sinless, and so he has already given God everything that he owes to God, and so he can do something of great good beyond what he owes that can then serve as a sort of compensation, reparation, satisfaction for what we owe to God. And as divine, he's of infinite value and so can propitiate an infinitely bad dishonor because the victim is infinitely correct worthy of honor. That is right. I think this is where the idea of there's got to be something infinite about the, vic- the sacrifice That's right. victim kind of comes into the tradition. Yes. So, yeah, Anselm's got this idea. He's definitely got this idea of kind of balancing off the... Uh, the wrong with an equally valued right. So if, so if our wrong is infinite against God, and our wrong is infinite in quality because we've wronged a being that have, has infinite value. So if you wrong an infinite value being, you now owe an infinite debt. So the way that Jesus pays that debt is he himself has infinite value. And when he gives his life up in service to God on the cross, that was something he didn't have to do. He wasn't obligated to do that. In some of our contemporary terminology, we would call that a supererogatory act, an act that goes beyond duty. And that was an incredibly good thing. And because he offered himself to die in this way that he didn't owe, because he didn't know death because he wasn't sinful, he acquires infinite merit because he has infinite in value and he gave all that infinite value up in death, which was an infinitely good thing. And so Jesus now acquires infinite merit on behalf of humanity. And so he can, in a way, cash that in to balance off humanity's debt to God. So basically, Jesus is ready to cash it in. 
And for us to take advantage of it, we've just got to be followers of him. The only way that the debt can be paid is through the actions of a divine human, someone who is of the human race, so is in a position to pay the debt on behalf of humanity, and someone who is divine, that is sinless, and in virtue of being sinless, that person then doesn't owe God anything, so that person could do something sort of above and beyond uh, what, what he owes to God. So that's what Jesus does. He, by dying on the cross, he willingly gives up his life in service of God, and that is what many of us call a supererogatory act. Supererogatory means going above and beyond the call of duty. So he didn't owe that to God because he was sinless and he doesn't owe death in virtue of being sinless. He willingly gives up his life in service of God, which is an act that was not owed to God and yet was a great good. And so God should respond to that with some gift. Now, the value of what Jesus gave in his death on the cross has infinite value because he gave up his life, and since he was divine, his life had infinite value. So he gave up something of infinite value to make up for the infinite debt that we owe to God in virtue of having wronged him. So the infinite value of his death cancels out the infinite debt that we owe. Indeed, Anselm says that Jesus' death was of such great value that it not only matched what we owed, but it went above and beyond what was owed. And so Jesus does something that is sufficient to pay the debt that we owe. And so all that we humans need to do to be reconciled to God is to grasp a hold of this act of atonement. That is to follow Jesus and say, yep, I appeal to him. I'm with this guy who offered this this, uh, act of atonement on our behalf. And on this view, then God's honor is restored. And so the rift is healed. Yeah, the honor is restored. Humanity is no longer dishonoring God because their sins have been atoned for. And that sets up uh, the possibility of reconciliation. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. The last view that we'll talk about here is uh, the Christus Victor view. This is actually uh, related to the ransom theory that we talked about earlier, but it's, it's a bit more general and it isn't, quite, it isn't committed to all the stuff about Satan having rights over humanity. The general idea of the Christus Victor view is that humans are captive to sin. We're sort of enslaved to sin in some sense, and different views will interpret that somewhat differently. And what Jesus does is he liberates us from 
this captivity to sin. He can liberate us personally by sort of giving us power to be better people. He can liberate us socially by inspiring and and speaking against inadequate or wrong social conditions. The idea is that his actions bring us into freedom. They make it so that we are not enslaved to sin anymore. We are now free to be God's disciples. Yes, and this is a theme that you see here and there in, I think, mostly Paul's letters, where Jesus is presented as triumphing over the powers of darkness, humiliating them publicly, and so on. So yeah, on our part, it's a, it's a releasing to freedom, but as far as they're concerned, it's a, it's a mark in the loss column. It's a big loss. That's right. It is a defeat of the powers of evil, and his death and resurrection then play a role in this, because by willingly dying... Jesus is saying, here, I'm going to take on your worst, right? The worst that you can give evil is death. And I'm going to take that on, and then I'm going to defeat it by being raised from the dead. And that shows that I am the true authority over, over life, and those who follow me will then be free from this sin and death. So when we look back on these theories, some would think that we have an embarrassment of riches. Oh, there's all these different ways of looking at it. You know, the more the merrier. Let a thousand flowers bloom. And other people would think it's an embarrassment because, at least on the face of it, it looks like most of the theories would be incompatible with the other ones. They tell a different tale about quite what is going on. They tell a different tale about wherein the value of this event lies. In our next episode, we'll we'll put on our philosopher's hats and uh, put some objections out there and see if we can narrow down the field because insofar as they are incompatible then if one's true the other has to be false and there are some real difficulties we'll see about most of these approaches difficulties that have for some people proven to be objections to christianity and for christians have been a motive to well let's theorize about this harder let's let's try a different angle a different approach dr thoreau thank you so much for talking with us thanks for having me This week's thinking music has been the track Hige Kide Kina by Fabian Measures. You can find a link to this song on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. You can also find links to Dr. Thoreau's homepage, to his edited book, The A Priori and Philosophy, and links about St. Anselm of Canterbury and his work, Curdeus Homo. You know, anytime you click one of our Amazon links and then buy anything at all on Amazon, we get a small cut of it. So that's another way that you can support this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.